Welcome to 3D Lila, a journey in 3D. Join us to talk about all things 3D printing, food, and nutrition. On 3D Lila, you'll get updates each week on our 3D printed journey to fitness, challenges you can join, and interviews with other people doing cool things in the 3D printing, fitness, and nutrition spaces. Maybe we'll inspire you even to become a 3D Lila too. Before we get started, a quick reminder that we have goodies and discounts from the supporters of 3D Lila on our website. Just go to 3dlila.com, that's 3dlila.com, and click on the discounts page and check it out. Stay tuned as I'll tell you more about them soon. This week on 3D Lila, we have the amazing opportunity to have Michael Petch with us talking about 3D printed food. I know. 3D printing might be used in disaster relief situations. So again, you have um, your base ingredients um, and then they can be reconstituted for use um, in a country. Okay, so yes, I know I was supposed to talk about me this month, but I had completely forgotten what I was saying next week on 3D Lila that I had this wonderful interview with Michael queued up and I didn't want to push it out another month. So the one after this, I'll be talking about what's going on with me. Because in all reality, which again, why I still haven't printed out another one of me, is that I am still struggling. I am trying to do a project that is asking me to focus on weight loss and my health while I am trying to start a company at the same time. And I eat every time I freak out. Although I had a lovely conversation with my producer of this show who laughed at me and she said, well, you could just say I eat because emotion, which is 100% right. And it is such a food thing for me. It's such a food thing. And I noticed for the first time last night week that it also became a fitness thing. Last week was the first time since I started my own business that I realized that I had prioritized work over working out. And I know that seems really silly and not something you should really worry about. But for me, within the context of this project, it is a big deal. And so I had a little chat with myself about why I'm doing 3D Lila what is the goal of this project and reminded myself that the goal of this project was never to become famous for doing this or any of that nonsense. It was always about documenting my own journey, the good and the bad, and hopefully inspiring others and helping them understand that the world of fitness and nutrition is changing. The what are you supposed to eat is changing. The what are you supposed to do is changing. And in this journey, whatever your journey is, you're not alone. This was brought to the forefront for me this week because one of my favorite podcasts, and it's not even a podcast, it's a radio show that I listen to, is a show called This American Life. And if you have not listened to it, especially for our overseas friends, it is so beautifully done. And this week's episode was called 
tell me I'm fat. It was, it still is still ringing in my ears and it's different interviews with different people around their own individual weight loss, weight gain, weight issues and the F word. And I mean the three letter F word, not the four letter F word. And I, I don't think I have a full emotion yet on what I heard except that it reminded me why I was doing what I'm doing and reminded me that mindfulness in all of this is who I am trying to be because this is a forever game, not a what did I lose yesterday game. Oh, as you can see, I, I need some time to do the long episode for this, but this gives you a little bit of an insight into where my head is and what I'm thinking and everything that happens there. So we're going to put a link to the This American Life episode of Tell Me I'm Fat in the show notes. So if you are interested in listening, and if you are struggling at all on this journey, it is 100% worth a listen. I know I had a bit of a weepy session, so go listen to that as well. I'm going to hand this off to the amazing interview I got to do with Michael 3D printed food is so fascinating. He's so fascinating. It's all good. So tune back in next week when I talk about all this stuff. Otherwise, on with the show. So you know I'm all about the goodies for 3D Lila listeners. Well, guess what? And I don't think this is available anywhere else. If you have been listening to the show, you got to hear the amazing Erica talk about Escape to Shape. And Escape to Shape, if you haven't heard the show, is this wonderful vacation that you can take with Erica and her team. They blend traveling, local flavors, experiences, entertaining with balance and wellness. And they bring that all together in these unique locations that provide a perfect backdrop and platform for their guests to rediscover themselves while discovering a new culture. I know I'm going to go on an escape this year. I'm actually going to Nicaragua in November. I'm very excited. But for 3D Lila listeners, you can see all of this on our page, but you can get $200 off any of the vacations, which is just special for us. So when you go there, there's the instructions, but you just do info at escapetoshape.com and tell them that you're a 3D Lila listener and you'll get the $200 off. So I love that our guests are providing value to our listeners. So take an escape, go hang out, get delicious food, daily yoga and fitness classes, hiking, cultural stuff, and some cocktails and some laughter. And trust me, it'll be amazing. I have no doubt. Well, welcome everybody. And thank you for joining us for this week's interview for 3D Lila. And today I am very excited to announce that one of our former guests, uh, Virginia, who you'll remember talked about fringe 3D printing of food, introduced us to who can only be described as the subject matter expert globally on 3D printed food and actually has a book out, if you are interested, called The Future of Food, How Making Cutting Edge Technology in 3D Printing Will Change the Way You Eat. And 
when we found all out about Michael, we got, as we do, very stalkerish and reached out and said, will you be on our show? And so Michael said yes, and here you are. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's very exciting. Um, and only because I think it's cool, can you share with the people where you are recording in from? Uh, at the moment, I'm in sunny Guadalajara. Because, you know, that's where all the cool kids are. Well, not today. It's rather, rather hot, actually. It's a bit oh, Yeah, well, so as you have probably, for the listeners, already guessed, you've got two Brits on the line today. And I gave, when I first met Michael, I gave him a hard time about complaining about the heat because, oh, England is a cold, cold place and I would take the hot any day. But anyway, enough of that. Let's get into 3D printing. And well, so clearly you've actually written a couple of books and I understand writing another one, which we'll be talking about in a second, but you've been talking about 3D printing and food for some time. I'd love to know how you first got involved, because you've been doing this for way longer than I have. It's not really that long. I mean, I <laughs> got involved only in sort of 2013, and um, I've been you know, interesting in sort of frontier and emerging and tech for a long time before that. And my background is in um, is actually in finance and economics. So um, I came across quite a lot of startups um, during that time. And when I I moved um, on to become self employed, um, I found myself writing white papers um, and looking at things like um, blockchain, um, additive manufacturing, and um, off the back of that, uh, I was approached by a publisher to write um, a a summary, really, of the impact of 3D printing across industries like aerospace, um, medicine, um, and and food as well. And it was designed to be a primer. Um, the book was well-received, and so I was invited back to write another one, just deep delving into food, and that was in 2014. Um, and at the time, I don't think there were any other books on the subject. The actual um, 3D printing of food had is a topic that's uh, been around for a lot longer than that, and I believe in probably 2006 people were working on it, but um, but no one's really uh, written a book on it. So uh, <laughs> I was, um, you were you were first to market in that area. I was not going to say for sure. I think I was. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing because you know I was uh, I was actually sitting next to a guy at a dinner the other night who was involved early with Jamba Juice and then also started a company here in the Bay Area called Melt, who does spectacularly delicious grilled cheese sandwiches. That is their entire restaurant brand. Um, it's fabulous. And uh, starting a new one, and we were talking about three, and this is a guy who's in the biz, and we were talking about 3D printed food, and he still was looking, giving me that look of like, eh, I just don't get it. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But like you've done the deep research and when like specifically talked about how broad the areas of food 3D printing can be and like the different areas that you think about when you think about 3D printed food and I'd love you to talk about that so because I think you have such a understanding of the industry to kind of help the rest of us go oh that's what you're talking about well I think I mean for me, probably one of the early pieces of work um, was done by um, Cornell University. Um, I think the group leader there was Hod, um, Hod Lipson, and uh, his, um, uh, his student, uh, Jeffrey 
Lipton um, together. They worked on um, on a project uh, looking at personalised nutrition. Now, um, one of the early applications that they designed was um, a device which would work out your activity levels, say taking the inputs from your Google Calendar, um, add in variables like your you know, your weight, your age, um, and then using an algorithm that would calculate um, whether you'd exceeded your recommended calories for the day in activity or whether you'd, um, you still had a, had a bit left. So on the back of working at that calorie requirement, they then realized that they could um, plug in a 3D printer to print a cookie. And um, I think that's one of the first cases of 3D printing being used as personalized nutrition. Um, so they would print this cookie that was tailored for whatever sort of surplus calories you had left after um, doing your activities and your other energy inputs for the day. Um, they sort of continued doing research, and a lot of the early stuff you, you see is um, is by that group at Cornell. There's um, also the von Haslands who have sugar labs. They also were working with um, with early sort of 3D printing and food again, sort of probably about five years ago. And um, uh, the evil mad scientists as well, I think they put together a 3D um, food printer for... Um, for a maker fair um, many years ago as well. And those people were working quite a lot with sugar and with chocolate. Um, and in those situations, 3D printing was really just reforming um, a substance that's already been put in. And sugar's quite easy to work with, but um, but chocolate maybe not so much, and other ingredients as well, it can be a bit difficult. Um, and it's the repeatability of these things which, uh, which people do struggle with. Now that's that's, I suppose, looking at um, using 3D printing at the plate sort of end of the spectrum. If we go back to the farm gate, really, you know, you, there are applications for um, 3D printing or additive manufacturing, it's probably more correct to call it, all throughout that chain. So um, there's a chap um, who's designed um, and uh, rapidly prototyped a device which chills um, food whilst it's... Um, just when it's just been harvested. So spoilage is a massive source of um, waste in the, in the food chain. So it's only like 50% of fruits and vegetables gets wasted. Now this guy, um, using 3D printing, was able to refine his design, um, make it very low power consumption because it's designed to be used in countries like Africa and um, developing um, countries, um, and work out the most efficient way of designing it. And also make a tangible prototype that he could then um, then sort of uh, show to investors. And, you know, when they can actually see this thing working, um, he was able to get financing for that. Now, they didn't use 3D printing in the final, um, the final sort of object, but they did use it to get to that stage. And now they've been out in Africa, I think, um, teaching people how to use it um, with mango farmers, I believe. So... You know, those are two opposite ends of the spectrum. And obviously, in between that, there's a, there's a lot more applications um, that we could probably talk about. I mean, I've heard in just general 3D printing that this concept of the rapid prototyping is, is fundamentally the shift that is happening in manufacturing in general. It's interesting to hear about how that applies on the food level as well. Um, so I actually want to talk about a specific one we talked about. You talked about potato chips and the bag that potato chips were in and how you saw, I can't know if you remember this part of the conversation, how you saw how 3D printing could evolve, 
I think it's what you call the systems engineering process of food delivery from, well, from farm to table. That's, um, that particular example, that was um, something that I heard um, at the Fruity Food Printing Conference in Venlo in the Netherlands um, that took place um, back in April. Um, and at that conference, there were lots of people um, involved in academia, involved in industry, and the head of a very large um, government-funded um, research project, um, a woman called Jenny Lord, um, was discussing, yes, the use of um, 3D printing for um, uh, making efficiency savings in the supply chain. And her example was, um, well, yeah, you think about a bag of crisps or chips, and how much of that bag is actually just air? So when you're shipping these boxes of crisps around the country, you know, large majority of what's in that lorry is air. Now, if you could just reconstitute the potatoes and the other ingredients closer to the site where they were to be sold, say in a 7-Eleven, or maybe a probably larger service centre than that, then you would save a lot of the shipping around, a lot of the extra space that's taken up by these things. And that was an example which she used. And she also then talked a bit about how um, maybe free printing might be used in disaster relief situations. So again, you have um, your base ingredients, um, and then they could be reconstituted for use um, in a country. It's like it's like almost like on-demand Pringles. Mm. Well, I, you know, I have to sort of add, I don't think we're anywhere near that stage <laughs> at the moment. Um, and I think, you know, like all areas of 3D printing, um, food is, is subject to a lot of hype as well. And I you know, try my best not to get carried away by that. Um, you know, there's some generally interesting things happening. But um, there is possibly a... Um, uh, maybe in lazy science writing or maybe sort of um, companies are also a bit guilty when they're trying to get their Kickstarter funded. Yeah. There's a tendency to sort of oversell this a bit as, um, you know, as a replicator device, which I think by now most people aren't, uh, aren't sort of buying that, that one anymore. But there are still a few sort of uh, maybe sort of misunderstandings about just what is possible. And I think, um, again, this conference in Venlo was, was very good because... Um, a chap called Brian Headley um, sort of did so, you know, he's again involved with um, a uh, academic research program and finding solutions for businesses, how they can use um, 3D printing with food and his, you know, very broad statement was, well, you know, where's the value mm. you know, 3D printing this? So, it's not necessarily the solution to everything it may not be the solution to anything um, and there may be other ways around this I think it's, um it is a fascinating area, and with food, people obviously do get um, uh, are sort of enthralled by this. Yes. Well, I mean, I get it, because, like, I'm sitting here looking outside my window and have an orange tree that grows in my backyard or garden, depending on what country you're from, and I couldn't imagine even considering not eating the fruit right off the tree, given that opportunity, and so there's that, like, and, and there is a difference between, and I, I flippantly use the Pringle, Pringles on demand as an example, but, uh, well, is that, well, so here's the question in my head. Is there really a difference between a Pringle and a potato chip? Because really it's just the mush in your mouth at the end of it. Well, so it, it, the whole reconstitution and the supply chain thing is still a bit far out there. What do you think? Do you think there's anything that's closer in that actually is going to? 
I mean, you wrote a whole book about how it's going to change how we eat. Like, what do you actually think is going to happen here? Sure. I mean, I think, I mean, we use the sort of Pringles example there, maybe to sort of talk a little bit about that area. Um, because, okay, you know, once, uh, yeah, you're, you're chewing it up and you end up with some Pringles. It's all mush. <laughs> it's all mush, yes. Um, you know, but people still won't mix mashed potato and peas together on their plate. <laughs> so some people like to... Speak not, for yourself. Uh, yummy. Well, not me, necessarily, <laughs> but where these people exist. Yeah. Um, so obviously there are many dimensions to food, not just the mush that ends up in your mouth. You've got, you know, in the case of the Pringles can, what's their slogan, once you pop, you can't stop. So that's, you know, that sort of experience of taking the lid off the can, you know, the noise yeah. that they make. The snap of a, a Pringle, you know, you think about chocolates, if it's been tempered properly, it'll snap. You think about Snapple, um, <laughs> that little sucking noise that comes when you open the bottle. So, you know, let's think about how can you use 3D printing in, in that aspect? Well, you might want to turn uh, prototype new presentations of your product. So, you know, a, a maybe not a Pringles can, it's just paper and uh, <laughs> a bit of plastic. But um, maybe you might want to sort of design different glasses i don't know i mean you could you could imagine using 3d printing in that sense for uh, testing um uh, testing survey groups um i mean you can also imagine it being used um to to and people are using it to um to reconstitute things which aren't um aren't sort of necessarily edible or well they're edible but not digestible so this would be something like um, cellulose, um, and uh, this is a, again a presentation that I um, I was uh, listening to um, by somebody called uh, Sonia Holland, I believe, who's doing a PhD in um, in food science, and she's looking at how cellulose is, is a big part of our diet, and it's a very um, useful source of fibre because we don't have the enzymes to break this down. Now, that's good because it contributes to feelings of satiety of being full when you've eaten. Um, it doesn't sort of degrade into, into things which result in, um, in nasty gases or anything like that. Um, but the problem also is it's hard to mix in with food because you can't, the body doesn't break it down. Now, what um, this woman's been doing is working on a way of um, milling the cellulose and then breaking down some of the crystals. There's still a bit of dispute on whether cellulose crystals do break down a lot, but then reconstituting these crystals using um, additive manufacturing to um, reform them with other ingredients. So this would be a way of getting extra fiber into people's diets, um, which, you know, would also contribute to them feeling um, full as well. So I think that that approach is quite interesting, and there's another project... Um, done by a Dr. Martin, uh, Martin Shooter, um, who's looking at a sodium cassonate, which is a milk protein. Um, now, again, they're using 3D printing there to explore how this protein um, functions in food. And the reason it's of interest is because this contributes to the taste profile of the food. Um, if there's this milk protein present, um, you're going to experience the food as creamy, as rich. And if there's a way to actually um, work with that protein so less of it can be used by 3D printing, by 
arranging it in different shapes or different layouts, um, you may be able to get the experience of a very creamy, very rich um, food, but using much less of this. So this is sort of similar to the idea of nano salt, where you're trying to get the same salt profile by um, unwrapping a salt molecule. Um, so it covers the same space when it hits your tongue and your taste buds, but you can cut down on you know, things like salt, things like fat, increase things like fiber. So you know, there's certainly applications in that. I think one of the organizations which is closest to doing um, a lot of that work is probably um, TNO, who are um, a Dutch company who um, are very advanced and really have the resources um, to work on this, and they've um, you've probably seen some of their projects in the press. I think they work with the pasta company Gorilla. Um They've worked with chocolate companies, and um, they've they've done a lot of work on sort of personalised um, nutrition um, through to uh, the actual sort of experience of eating, and also looking at ways to improve. Probably what one of the most critical things in all of this is the speed of how these things are made, because. Um, that's that's quite often a bit of a drawback when you uh, uh, when you see some of these devices for sale and say, well, how long will it take to make a cookie? Mm, Forty five minutes. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I think I expect my Amazon deliveries to come faster than that. So uh, it's just all fascinating, and it all sounds very a little science fictiony. Although I think anybody who listens to this show knows that I'm also like get me to Star Trek where I've got the replicator going, ta-da, here's your dinner. It will be a very happy person. And I know we're a long way off from that, but it makes me wonder if we should be educating ourselves on this as well because of things like food security. And like, I know that there's almost a war that is waged out there in the food spaces around should one go GMO or not GMO uh, you know, there's the sugar wars that are going on now. Like, how much should we? Do you think this is a positive, or a, should we be worried when it comes to food security and 3D printing? I think you've touched on a lot of interesting things there. Um, really, I mean, the whole sort of um, debate on GMO. I think that taps into something um, sort of much deeper um, about people and food. Um, you, know, you could sort of really call it the sort of Prometheus effect, I suppose, where you know it's almost like a Frankenstein. <laughs> when you start sort of tinkering with nature, people do sort of get uh, up in arms. But you know, at the same time, they kind of forget that, well, the apples that we're eating today, you know, sort of golden delicious or whatever, are very different to the ones that Alexander the Great found when he was wandering around um, sort of Central Asian mountains <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. You know, so we've we've always sort of, um, as a civilization, looked at ways of you know domesticating animals, refining um, our foods, um, in the sense that we want you know, them to grow better, be more disease resistant. So you know, I can't see GMO as a, a continuation of that process. And obviously, there are maybe the business practices of some of the companies involved. It might be. Um, uh, maybe less, um, less moral. Tiny, less, tiny bit questionable. <laughs> exactly, but I think that shouldn't sort of uh, shouldn't be thrown in with the, the debate around the science of it. And I think mm. overwhelmingly, um, science does say that um, things like golden rice, you know, are a great solution and something we're going to need more of. Um, the, the rate we're destroying the planet, um, mm. and we need crops to grow in these areas which are no longer. Um, 
uh, no longer sort of uh, suitable for the old style seeds. So, you know, we need we do need to look at these things. And food security, yes, is a big big part of that. Um, you know, water security is definitely um, a dimension of that. And um, you know, the amount of uh, the amount of water that goes into raising crops. So, you know, we in three D printing, you know, it's maybe a little bit of a tenuous link, but you can say, well, what's the problem with with water, I mean, we've got this planet is something like ninety-eight percent, or some ridiculous amount of water. But no, sorry, ninety-eight percent is, is salt water. Yeah. So we've got um, a lot of water, but we can't really use it. You know, why hasn't uh, desalination advanced sufficiently to allow us to irrigate crops with with that water? Well, it's it's a question of of energy quite often and actually powering these processes like reverse osmosis. Now, you know, if we could start designing, um, say, supercapacitors or um, more efficient um, photovoltaic cells, um, and these are two areas where 3D printing is being used to, to advance the research, you might be able to start working with either the current technology, if you've got um, a much better source of energy, a much cheaper source of energy, or you might be able to use a different process. So um, nanomaterials like um, graphene have been mooted as a very useful ultrafiltration device, um, which has an advantage over um, reverse osmosis in that it doesn't remove some of the salts from the water, so you don't get this um, strange sort of tasting water you can get with reverse osmosis. And also you can do it at, um, at quite a low pressure, so the pressure of a normal, normal household. Um, so, you know, I think free printing as wide as it is really sort of can maybe approach these situations in different ways. So once you've got this source of water, suddenly um, it becomes less of a problem to, um, to grow in some of these areas, um, especially with advances like things in aquaponics or in, um, uh, you know, some sort of vertical farming um, yeah. to be sort of discussed recently. So I think there's a, there's a lot of overlap and lots of yeah. ways. It sounds like, you know, I think about, you know, I've been I've been in the tech space, but not in this area for for many years. And there's the it's almost like multiple innovations have to happen. Almost synchronously. And we you know, you talk about in the startup world, oh, well, they were just too early uh, because the innovation around a thing um, hadn't started yet. Uh, And. It'll be interesting to see what innovations are happening now that we'll look back up and go, well, they, they help build the path too, but these other solutions had to arrive and be synchronous to be able to, to actually see the, the full benefit of it, which is, which is part of the fun of being in this, in this really early innovation state. Hmm. I think I think there's something to be said for that, but then there's also, you know, that idea of being too early um, because there is no market. Well, I mean, consider the um, the mountain biking market, which is now you know worth a substantial amount of money. There's lots of companies in this. It's all very well known. Well, 20 years ago or so, maybe a bit longer, you couldn't buy um, a mountain bike, and people riding around California and going off road had to sort of make their own sort of mashup of the components they could get. Um, and the actual market was um, very much driven by 
by these users, these hobbyists who were very professional about their hobby. So I think, you know, they were solving a problem which just existed for them. If you'd asked any of the big bike manufacturers, why don't you develop this bike with, you know, large tires, suspension, handlebars mounted like this, they would have said, oh, you're joking, there's no one who wants that. Once the actual users got and made this and you know, they realized, oh, well, there is a market. And I think, you know, that's something that 3D printing does let people do it. It lets them solve a problem, which might just exist for them. But yeah. you'd probably be quite sure that if you've got a problem, then somebody else is going to have that. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need companies to throw vast amounts of resources to actually get to that, that stage where you can demonstrate, oh, look, this does work. This, this is, is useful. actually something. Yes, that's that rapid... There's that rapid prototyping. But I always think, so, you know, one of the, when I first got in, interested in 3D printing was when I actually first got interested in self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. And in the process, like, I really understand, again, back to the human, it's always back to the human factor, but the human factor of people like to drive their cars and don't want to kind of hand over the reins to and how do you start shifting that thinking and so was doing researching and learned that one of the most common sources of organ donation is from car accidents because most people unfortunately who die in car accidents aren't terminally ill so they can actually harvest their organs and things like that and that the dramatic drop in fatalities with the shift to self-driving cars would create a dramatic drop in availability of organs um, for, you know, organ replacement for people. And so there almost needs to be this correlation between the increase of self-driving cars and the lowering of fatalities with the ability to 3D print hearts and lungs and livers and all of that good sort of stuff. That, That synchronicity on innovation and the human factor there, I think, is, is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and speaking about cars, I mean, that's, that's something which is a massive barrier to entry, to entering into the automotive um, industry. Um, I remember a few months ago, I was listening to a presentation by um, a woman called Julia Longton from uh, Washington, I believe, and, um, and she's been, she was a programmer, but uh, I think she's got RSI or something, so she had to take a break from that. And uh, her new sort of activity is um, smelting aluminium in her home using microwaves. What? <laughs> now, there is a reason for this. Um, what she's tried to do is, um, is make an open source um, car um, in the back garden. <laughs> so, you know, it sounds, it sounds a bit out there, but... No, she sounds awesome. Are you yeah. kidding me? I am so... Oh, that's so funny. So, you know, that, that's... You know, again, I think um, she's using 3D printing um, in the process to create the um, the molds necessary for the, um, for this process of smelting aluminium, which is is quite tricky. And um, judging from the presentation, maybe something you don't want to try at home. <laughs> no, but no, I totally want to go to her house and check it out. It's yeah. Although you know, we say it's a big shift and. You know, I'm so lucky to get to live in the Bay Area because I get to see a lot of this stuff firsthand. And I have a number of friends who have got the first Teslas with autopilot and they leave, they work in San Francisco and uh, they live in San Francisco and work in, say, Apple, which is down in Cupertino, which requires 
you to either drive down the 101 or the 280 to get to the South Bay. And it's about, depending on traffic, anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half. And they all tell me how they drive to the freeway, then turn on autopilot and just let the car take them. And they'll check email and do other things and be on the phone and all of this other sort of stuff. So uh, while it's hugely, hugely early adopter space on self-driving cars, the reality is, is the the vehicles are actually out there. We just don't know necessarily who they are. It's it's all good. I could go on talking to you forever because I have like a zillion more questions. And I'm looking at my questions and I'm like, we didn't even talk about some of the other stuff. Um, I threw out for the listeners, our, our conversation started on Twitter. And I said, I said, was the 3D printer going to become as ubiquitous as the microwave? And my remembrance is your answer is we're not quite there yet. So, so yeah, so I, we should absolutely keep in touch on all of this. Cause I'm always going to be fascinated with up, what you're up to. I'm going to put a little GPS tracker on you so I can find out what conferences you're going to. <laughs> and then I'm going to go meet this woman who's building cars in her backyard. Cause she is my people, but we have run out of time. So we need to move to our wrap up questions. Cause I want to let people go. So Mr. 3D Printing Food Guy, what is your favorite food? It would have to be um, mole with um, pickled um, habanero onions, I believe. Well, it's a good job you live in Mexico and probably have excellent access to fantastically made that. I don't think I've ever had pickled. Those have got to be extremely hot. Yeah, it's an acquired taste, but um, really. Once you try it, that combination, you won't, uh, want you won't to go it. back. Yes. Uh, now, obviously, you're into 3D printing, and now I have learned into three self-driving cars a little bit. But what new technology have you seen that you are most excited to learn about? Um, nano. Nano is the next big thing. Yeah. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe a, bit, a bit of a bad pun. But um, I think it's very interesting that... Um, that DARPA appeared to be going down the um, atomically precise manufacturing route, which was um, sort of uh, discussed a lot by Eric Drexler um, quite a long time ago. Um, and I think Nano, again, kind of got um, a little bit like 3D printing has been over the past few years, overhyped. We didn't get our, our miniature swarms of drones flying through our, um, our veins yes. <laughs> curing cancer. But... Um, but DARPA have put um, a lot of money into uh, 10 different national laboratories in, in the U.S. Um, for developing um, a pathway to atomically um, precise manufacturing, um, which I think will be very worth watching um, to see what comes out of that. Yeah, very interesting. Well, Michael, thank you so much for making time for us and coming to talk to us. Like, as I said, I have like a million more questions, so clearly I'm going to have to go buy your book. And for those of you that are listening, we will absolutely put a link in our show notes so that if you are interested in learning more, having a bit of a Vulcan mind meld with Michael's brain, we'll make it easy for you. Uh, but thank you again. And keep us posted to, to what's going on because we are always super curious. Well, yes. And sorry to recommend another podcast, but the free digital cooks do a podcast just focused on 3D printing and food. So that's always... Um, always a winner to, uh, to catch up on what's going no on. No apologies necessary. We will make sure we promote them too. More the merrier in our book. Well, that was our wonderful interview with Michael and on with the show. 
wasn't that awesome, wasn't it? Like, can you now wrap your head around where 3D printed food is going to go? I know I looked at people funny when I first thought, heard about it. It's fascinating. So I think I, I said a lot in the first half of this show, and I think I have a lot more to say, and I am way overdue to tell a bit of my story on this. Although, good Lord, I was given the phrase itty bitty shitty committee a long time ago, and it's this tool that sits on your shoulder and tells you you're not good enough, and it is super loud right now. But I am going to keep talking and keep pushing because I know I can't, I can't not do this. I have to continue to do this, if anything, to help educate the world on what's happening. If you are struggling, hopefully my little rant on my struggles has helped you realize you're not alone and we're all in this together. So I'm going to keep my inspiring session short and sweet and not talk about new stuff, but say... If you are struggling, reach out. I'd love to hear who you are and I could do with a hands-in. You know what? That's actually my ask. I could do with some inspiration. So if you're out there listening and you've been inspired by this show, tweet us or put a message on Facebook, wherever your social media piece is, or put a note on the show because I need it this time as opposed to giving it out. So that's what I want. Next week on 3D Lila, as I said, it's going to be all me all day. Oh, I will try not to be too depressing. Actually, I won't be too depressing because it's time and it's due and all that good sort of stuff. So come back next week. You can hear more of my crazy. I look forward to talking to you then. Well, that's all at 3D Lila for now. As always, we want to hear from you. Let me know with your comments on our website at 3dlila.com, on Twitter at 3dlila, and on our Facebook page. Come over there and like us. Today's show was produced and edited by the team at the Amplify Lab. A big thanks to Lucy Heston, our audio and digital producer, and generally the person who keeps us all in line, and Kelly Burt, our show editor. Until next time. Until next time.